So this is our uh, this is our final session, and it is the one about who you are and, and what to do when you step on a landmine, when you blow off a limb or an appendage. Um, perhaps, <clears throat> perhaps for some of you guys, this will be the one that you uh, that you need the most. So, I want to open by reading a, a few scriptures for us. Um, some of the ones that are on the screen, and then and then others not just yet. And it'll make, it'll make sense as we go along why we're reading the ones we're reading. <clears throat> uh, so the first passage is 1 John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, the next one is uh, from Exodus 34. It's Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, so he's passing by Moses, and proclaim the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then the last one uh, is from Luke 5. So grab your, grab your Bibles and flip to Luke 5. <clears throat> and I'll read a short paragraph there about uh, the calling of Levi or the calling of, of Matthew. So we pick this up in verse 27 of Luke 5. Uh, this is uh, Jesus. He's, he's, uh, he's on mission here. And <clears throat> Verse 27 says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, who are you after you step on one of these uh, landmines that we've been talking about this weekend, other landmines maybe that we haven't specifically mentioned? Uh, the answer <clears throat> to the question rests on the more important foundation of who God is when you or I step on one of these landmines. And thankfully, uh, this is one of the ways in which God is gloriously unlike us, right? If uh, someone stole from you, broke faith with you, betrayed you, you might be inclined to write them off. I'd probably be inclined to do the same. But like the Exodus 34 passage <clears throat> uh, that we saw just a moment ago, which is one of the chief defining passages of God's character, right? It's an anchor passage for the declaration of God's character. He is slow to anger and eager to forgive. That's, that's pretty amazing. The one who deserves instantaneous and constant obedience is nevertheless profoundly patient with us. Um, and, and, and it's worth considering, even in our final session, how, how patient he's been with you specifically. The fact that we're even still here, by the way, is a sign of his patience. You may remember that Paul says in, uh, in Romans 2 um, that God's patience is, is found in not judging us at every moment that we deserve to be, right? There's, there's, there's many moments at which we have deserved to experience final judgment, and we have not. <clears throat> and Paul says that patience, if we see it for what it is, is actually meant to lead us to, to repentance, which obviously he's not saying no judgment, no consequences. But the one uh, God not only receives back his straying sheep, this is the beautiful thing about some of these passages, he, he actually pursues them back. You may remember the shepherd from 
uh, Jesus' story in Luke 15, right? He, he leaves the 99 in pursuit of the, the one, and the pursuit is particularly evident at the cross. Uh, I said I'd give you guys a, a passage and an image for future meditation in each of these sessions. There's not going to be table time at the end of this session. At the end of this session, um, I, I guess there would be maybe be some wrap-up commentary, but, uh, but it, it goes immediately into some counseling opportunities, and, and then we're basically winding up the time. So uh, I do want to, but I do want to give you uh, one of these passages for, for reflection. Um, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. <clears throat> Matthew 27. And here, so, so what we've seen so far, right, is... is um, <clears throat> We had, uh, we've seen Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we've seen Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. This is Jesus uh, under um, the great duress of, of being on the cross. And I'm just going to pick it up in verse 39, uh, highlight a few, a few features here, and then dive into some discussion of repentance. So verse 39 of Matthew 27. <clears throat> Those who passed him by, excuse me, who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So, in that moment, <clears throat> Jesus is he's on the cross, he's, he's naked, he is exposed, he is reviled, he is being mocked, and they are ridiculing him specifically at the pointing, save yourself, right? Do for yourself what you have done for others. But here's the, so, right, the curious thing about that is, can, can he, can he save himself? He can. But here's what he can't do. He cannot save himself and save you. He can save himself. He, he, with a word. The angels, right, appear, ventilate wrath, come down from the cross. So, so what does he do? It, it's, he has spiked to a cross, but there's a sense in which he is even in his final moments and final breaths clinging to that cross, refusing to save himself when he could, enduring not only taunts, but finally divine wrath. That's how far he went for you. <clears throat> and he did that knowing all the messes that you and I would make out of our lives. Right? Those, those messes don't sneak up on him by surprise. He doesn't have buyer's remorse. It's like, oh, it's not who I thought he was. So I'm just going to leave that image up for, for the uh, duration of this talk. But, but, but the first part of the answer to the question, who you are when you blow up landmines, the first part of the answer is that you are one who has a God so merciful as that. That's who you are. Tim Keller likes to put it like this. this is, he says it all the time. This is from me, his Meaning of Marriage book. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's really good news, isn't it? To be known and loved like that. 
Right? He, does, he doesn't draw towards us like that because he doesn't know us. He does it in spite, in spite of the fact of what he does know about us. That's, that, that doesn't just save a person. That, can, that, that changes a person, right? That cost-absorbing forgiveness and love. It is both, it's both brutal and beautiful, isn't it? Which is, by the way, that's why we, that's why we call Good Friday Good Friday. You know, the first Friday, they didn't, they didn't call it Good Friday. They called it the world's worst Friday. You know, whatever they called it, they didn't call it good. But, but we see what it accomplished. We see what God was doing. And while it is brutal, it is also beautiful. <clears throat> that's the very best news. And it's true even if you have never trusted him before. So we may have some believers and we may have some investigators here this weekend. Even if, all, even if it feels like all you've ever done with your life is blow up landmines, Jesus is inviting you to repent and come to that kind of embrace. He would love for you to do that. And so if that's you, if you feel like, hey, you know what, I'm, I came as an investigator, but I'd like to know more. There's all kinds of people here who would love to talk with you about that before you leave today. I'd be happy to, Pastor Rick would be happy to, your table leader would be happy to, the men's ministry team, you've seen different guys up here throughout the weekend. Would, nothing would delight us more than to miss the big game, right, Clay? And talk with you guys about coming to know Jesus in this way. So, <clears throat> um, that's the first part of the answer to the question. Uh, here, here's the second part. The second part of the answer to the question, who am I when I blow up landmines? Right, so, so part one, you have a God so merciful as that. But part two is, I am a person in need of repentance. I blow up a landmine, I'm a person in need of repentance. We can thank God that repentance is possible. But we do need to stress that repentance is necessary. Okay, it's possible, <clears throat> but it's necessary. And God's requiring that from us is an expression of his merciful love. It's, 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 it's him saying, I'm, I'm not okay with you drinking poison. I'm not good with that. So what I mainly want to do well, with the time we have in this session is to discuss that repentance. What is repentance? What is repentance not? How may it be cultivated? So I got, uh, I got 12 thoughts on repentance. Some of them are a little bit brief. Some of them are a little bit longer. Here we go. <clears throat> so number one, from uh, the Luke 5 passage, we, we've seen that Jesus loves to forgive repentant sinners. Point number one, repentance responds to that mercy by surrendering everything to him. And you know, I know you're in Matthew, but a minute ago you were in Luke. Did you see that in verse uh, <clears throat> 28? He, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He, he's, he's, he surrendered lordship to him. And uh, Simon Peter, earlier in chapter 5, if you, if you trace your eyes back up <coughs> to, uh, to verse, into verse 8, Jesus is talking with Peter. This is the catch of great fish. Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And then the Lord calls him in verse 10. <coughs> you're not going to be a fisher of fish. You're going to be catching men. And they brought their boats to land, verse 11, and they left everything and followed. Uh, they left everything and followed him. Now, that doesn't mean that all they're doing or all you do in your repentance is have 24-7 devotionals, right? Like formal devotionals. But what it, what it is, it, it is an expression of a new ultimate allegiance. The life is surrendered to, to Jesus. That's number one. Number two, 
Um, Repentance is not just hating the consequences of sin. It's not just hating the consequences of sin. Here, I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, it's worth, that one's worth uh, flipping over to as well. Taking a look at 2 Corinthians 7, and uh, I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 for us as soon as I find it. Verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There are are different kinds of grieving, right, that on the surface look look, look pretty similar. Judas and Peter both shed tears. They did not both repent. And so, and so uh, this pat, right, there, there, there's a kind of grief that leads, that leads to death. It's why? It's not sorry for the sin. It is sorry for the self. Godly grief, by contrast, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So two, repentance is not just hating the consequences of sin. Three, nor is repentance simply hating the self. We mentioned self-hatred a little bit in the last session. Self-hatred is an attempt to pay that doesn't suffice. It may feel bad. It may recognize to some extent that punishment is deserved, but it tries to be the dispenser and the absorber of that punishment oneself, emotionally, physically. Again, that actually dishonors Christ because it effectively communicates that his payment was not enough so maybe mine would be. But it never is, so it goes on and on and on. I mean, those, that's why those are, tend to be cyclical behaviors, right? Because it's never enough. It's not hating the consequences. It's not hating the self. Number four, well, if it's not those things, what is it? Repentance, gospel repentance, is hating the sin and turning from the sin to Christ. So in Psalm 32, 5, you can just Jot this one down if you want. This will be quick. In Psalm 32, 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What's that? What's the iniquity of my sin? that's, That's like his way of saying you forgave the sinfulness of my sin the offensiveness of my sin to God, not merely its consequences, but the offense of my sin to the heart of the matter, what David is confessing in Psalm 51 when he says, against you, O Lord, you only have I sinned. It it confesses the rightness of God's judgment. It agrees with God against the sin, even as it turns from the sin. Number five. Repentance is a supernatural work of the Spirit. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Two verses I'm not even going to read, but you might want to take down. Acts, eight, excuse me, Acts 11, 18 and 2 Timothy 2, 25. Acts 11, 18, 2 Timothy 2, 25 both talk about God granting repentance unto life. Here's the point. 
fallen human beings do not naturally muster up the kind of humility that repentance requires, right? It, does, it, does, it doesn't boot up that way for the fallen human person. So, when we encounter repentance, we should celebrate it, right? It, 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 it is worth, so, so, so maybe you're walking with a friend, an accountability partner, through a particularly difficult issue, and you are seeing signs of repentance. There may be all kinds of grief that are still necessary concerning the sin that made the repentance a requirement. But the repentance itself is a miracle. And praise should be given to the Lord where signs of that miracle are present. Number six. Your sin has not made you too unclean, unclean, sorry, too unclean, to be welcomed by Christ in your repentance. Your sin has not made you too unclean. So, um, Dane Ortland wrote a book, I think it came out in 2020. Uh, I bet many of you have have come across it. Uh, It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I like this book a lot. So, recommended resource. One of his chapters, he's, he's combating this mentality, right? So, so, so sometimes the person who's grieved by sin is grieved to the point where they think, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm unapproachable. Christ would never take me back. And so he's combating this mentality, and he's doing so in, in, uh, in the spirit of John 6, 37, which says, Jesus says, all that the Father gives, uh, gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And he focuses on the last phrase of that verse, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And it's just, this one's too good. I've got to read it a little, little bit of length. So here, here's a paragraph, but, but track with this. It's, it's <clears throat> Ortland is putting, um, it's an imagined dialogue <clears throat> between God and a sinner who thinks I'm too unclean to be loved by Christ. It's, it's imagined, but it is in the spirit of John 6, 37. So <clears throat> check this out. No wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus, you don't understand. I have really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know. He responds. Well, you, you know most of it, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from you. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. I don't know if I can break free of this sin anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy, and it feels heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's good stuff. Number seven, 
repentance doesn't mean you'll never struggle or stumble again. It doesn't mean you'll never struggle or stumble again. As if, I mean, there is a decisive form of repentance at, at the outset of coming to faith. But Martin Luther famously said, our, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Right? So a, ch- a child of God is not a person who never sins, but a person who, as he grows in grace, agrees with God concerning his sin when he caves in. Okay? That's how we grow and move forward in the already, not yet. Right? Decisively forgiven, one day to be glorified, stumbling forward in faith at times. Number eight, the provocation to repent is a mercy. The provocation to repent is a mercy. So um, the landmine explodes, and it may feel like you've blown your world apart. And to some extent, that might be true. I mean, there may be consequences of of a shattered world. But even when jarring, it's a mercy if God gets your attention now. I was listening to a talk by Ed Welch several years ago having to do with, with this kind of issue. And he, and he said, with, you know, when it, when it comes to, to, to repentance and, and the hard but good element of repentance, he, he said there's basically like three doors. So door number one is you experience conviction for your sin and you voluntarily come forward with confession, repentance, self-humbling. That's the best door. Is it hard? Yes. Good? Absolutely. Door number one's the best door. Door number two is um, somebody gets caught and then faces confrontation, which is quite a bit more painful, right? But he's, he's, he's arguing in, in, the, in this talk that um, if the person caught and in, in, in facing confrontation then does respond with repentance and humility, that is, even though hard, a gift for which that person will thank the Lord that the shepherd came after the straying sheep. Because what's behind door number three, he says? Just letting you get away with it. Letting your heart go, where, right? In, in, in which case, the, the, the accounting is a final accounting. And the situation and the opportunity is too late. So, so, the, so the, the, the issues with repentance right? They, they can be very jarring. They can be, they can be painful. But they're also merciful, which is why Proverbs 3 and then Hebrews 12, which quotes Proverbs 3, both say, the father disciplines and chastises the one whom he loves. He chastises the son that he loves. So nine, in that sense, repentance is both hard and good. This is, we see a developing theme with this, don't we, right? The path of, 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 of obedience to Christ is absolutely worth it and also fraught with some of the hardships that Christ himself came to endure. So you remember the guy in Proverbs 5 who's, who's making the end of life a confession about listening to the wrong words? And I said in the last session, that's, that's, those are just hard words to hear, right? But, but they are nevertheless a confession. So what if you've gone too far? What if you've de- detonated a significant landmine, some form of sexual morality, adultery, you know, something else that you feel like has blown your world apart? Coming back will hurt. There's no, there's no denying that. 
but it's worth it. Which reminds me of, if, if you are, uh, if you're C.S. Lewis people, if you're Narnia fans, it reminds me of the um, scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Eustace turns himself into a dragon by falling, on, falling asleep on this coveted pile of treasure, and he goes to sleep a boy, he wakes up a dragon, and then he, does, does every, he scares everybody else, he doesn't like who he is, he tries with his own claws to, to rip off his dragon skin, as it were, it doesn't work. <clears throat> and then he has this encounter with Aslan. The lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling that skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund, and if you know Narnia, you know why Edmund understands what it means. He, he too, was a traitor. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath now that I would no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing around, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again a very nice illustration of the way that the embrace of sinful folly is subhuman. When we take that into, we, right, we take the deception of sin into our hearts, when we agree with sin against God rather than God against sin, that's subhuman living. You call it the dragonization of Eustace or the golemnization of, you know, whatever, but there's a way to come back. Does it hurt? Yes. But if you are this guy today, with bitter regret and on the brink of ruin, you need to know that Jesus loves humbled sinners and he loves to make repentant fools wise. When he was killed, he was publicly humiliated as though he were a fool when he was not one. And he did that so that he could rescue fools and bring prodigals home. So even if, even if you're in a situation where no one else knows yet, you've got something that needs to be dislodged and it hasn't, you, ha you haven't said it yet, you're not alone. And you're not beyond the reach of God's love. An old pastor friend of mine put it this way, there is no sin too great to be forgiven but it cannot be forgiven while it is being justified and hidden. No sin too great to be forgiven. 
while it's being justified and hidden, some sense cherished and protected. Right? Can't be forgiven. Number 10. So that sounds hard. How do you bear up under such painful confession? It's costly. How do you do that? I think the answer is because your repentance demonstrates that your identity is in Christ and not your sin. Your repentance demonstrates that your identity is in Christ and not your sin. So, turn to Ezekiel 16. Um, this is too, too good not to show you at a little bit of length. Ezekiel 16. <coughs> It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but we're going to highlight enough. So, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now, pause there for a second. That's not a compliment, right? He's talking about Israel's pedigree. You know what he's saying? Your mother was, a, was an Amorite, your father was a Hittite, or father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. He's saying, you know, good old father Abraham, when I, when I set my love on father Abraham, he was as pagan and lost as anybody else. In other words, your pedigree didn't distinguish you. I didn't, I didn't set my love on you because you were inherently lovely. I set my love on you to make you lovely. Verse 4, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born again. In other words, your legacy, your history, uh, your origin is not compelling. When I passed by you, saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather, wrapped you in fine linen, covered you with silk, adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist, a chain on your neck, a ring on your nose, earrings in your ear, a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen, silk, embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you declares the Lord God. Okay, pause there. So, it's clear she, Israel, was made beautiful by God's love, right? God made her beautiful. She didn't bring beauty to the table. That was a gift of the Lord's love to her. You might think a person who has tasted that, who has experienced that, who has received that, that, that's the kind of person that would never step on a landmine, right? Verse 15, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown, 
and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. Pause there. We're going to skip most of the rest of the chapter. You might want to read it later on this afternoon. It is, it is, it is a graphic detailing of her harlotry, just like Isaiah 5 is talking about, just like we've been talking about in our own embrace of sinful folly and deception. You might think a person who's turned their back on God's love like that and blown themselves up with a landmine like that might never be welcomed back. Skip on down to verse 62. This is what God says. After all of that, and there is judgment, by the way, but after all of that, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Watch this. That you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. See, see, see what he's saying there? In Christ, your shame and regret are not who you are. They don't have the last word. They do not have the most important word. And if you embrace him through the gift of repentance and faith, he will not drive you away. He, right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't even just say, I'll atone for you. Right? But, you know, boy, are you going to feel defined by your folly. He says, he says when I atone for you, it, 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 will, it will stop your, your mouth on account of your shame. Right? E, e, even to the point, right? So, so a person who set off the landmine of adultery, even as they move, they, 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 may, they may feel like they got a, you know, scarlet A tattooed on the forehead for a while, but Jesus says the reach of his forgiving love is not only the kind that can forgive that sin, but will stop you even from thinking about yourself as being defined, the adult, right? The one, what everybody else may or may not think when you walk into the room will not matter because of what Christ has done in atoning for the sin and covering the shame. Uh, 11, point 11. 1 John 1, 9 says God is not only faithful but just to forgive, which means if you repent, it's not just his mercy that's activated but his justice also. So, isn't that interesting, right? He, he, he's, he's just to forgive. What does that mean? It means if you repent, he must forgive. His justice compels him to forgive because he cannot require double payment. If you repent and receive Christ's payment by the, by the standards of his justice, he cannot finally judge, right? His, his justice restrains him. 12. <clears throat> if you have tasted the goodness of repentance. You desire for others to know that as well. So that means we earnestly pray for one another. It means when your friend is the straying sheep, you go after the straying sheep. We express some of that commitment in the context of a local church fellowship. But back finally now to the links that Jesus went to you. All that he asks is that you receive his gift by turning from sin to him. And if you are uh, 
If you're in that kind of bondage still, and you haven't vomited it up yet in confession, I mean, nobody expects confession to be, right? Your, your, your table mates, your, the counselors that you may talk to, they don't expect confession to be a clean process. They, 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 they know there's going to be some vomit. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. As I said in the introductory session last night, you will probably never be safer than you are in the context of this community, and you will certainly never be safer than you are in those arms. It is a safe place to confess, so take advantage of that opportunity if you need to before you go. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer here in just a second, but before I do, I want to give uh, a handful of overarching thoughts about what to do when you leave a conference like this. So it's, it's right, super compressed, a lot of great stuff in a condensed amount of time. I, I've been to conferences like this before and feel like there is so much good stuff. It feels like I'm drinking from a fire hydrant. I don't even, you know, see your pens smoking from taking notes. I've had several guys come up, where are we going to get the recordings? I ran out of ink. I don't, you know, I don't even... So, sometimes, I mean, well, that's, a, that's a really, that's a nice problem to have, isn't it? But, um, but sometimes it can be, it can be like such, such an overwhelming uh, influx of information that you're not even sure where to start tomorrow. What, what, what do I do this afternoon? What do I say to my wife? What do I do on, on Monday? So, you may have other takeaways. I hope you do. Um, and, and that you've been jotting them down throughout the course of the week, and I, I definitely take your, your question uh, packets with you and use those to process. But I, for, for, for my part, I have four um, main takeaways that I would just encourage you with as you move on here from this conference, okay? Four, four key takeaways. Um, number one, if you took notes, you, you know there, there's a lot of scripture this weekend, Right, Isaiah 5 and many other scriptures as well. Let those words, the words of scripture, be the ones that linger the longest. Okay? Take, take those words deep. So, so you know, uh, Sunday afternoon, Monday lunch, break, kind of rifle through the, 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 the passages that were discussed, maybe that stood out particularly to you. Let those be the words that, that you take in deeply. Uh, number two, husbands, try out the seven-day homework thing regarding your, your wife, regarding your spouse. Number three, we've said this one before, one weekend is not enough. It's great fellowship, great community, great time to gather around the word, share uh, confession and sharpening with one another. But you, have a, you, you don't just have a, one, a one-off need for this, right? It's, it's, it's a lifelong issue, and that's why, again, God designed the local church. So if you're not part of a local church fellowship, talk to somebody here about how you can plug in at Christ Community or one that is near to you. Fourth, my last appeal on this, if you have a burden right now of unrepented, unconfessed sin that you need help with after we're done, Maybe, where will, they, where will the counselor, counseling opportunity take place, Jesus, where? Okay, so right in the back, Jesus, Clay. Um, don't, don't, don't leave bypassing that opportunity, all right? Uh, they would love to help you. So, so please, 
please resist any temptation to quench the Spirit's work of conviction in your life where it is needed. For my part, um, it's been a lot of fun to hang out with you guys and to get to know some of you better, particularly the men at my table, to partner with the men's ministry team. Uh, I've enjoyed and been edified by so many of the things I've heard from Clay's talk last night to the conversations that we've had. So let me pray for you, and then, uh, then I'll be done. Heavenly Father, we, uh, our, our prayer going into this weekend and even now coming out of this weekend is that you would be doing a mighty work. Uh, we ask that it would be more than we could ask or imagine, and, and in some ways it sounds like that has begun to take place uh, in some of the conversations that have happened, the relationships that have been formed. We, just, we pray that you would continue to advance that work in our lives, in the lives of this church, in the lives of these men, the various churches they may be a part of. We pray for healing and consolation in marriages where that may be needed, uh, for, for eagerness to lean into accountability to brothers in the body of Christ, as well as uh, to, to have cultivating a, a, a savoring uh, for your word and an eagerness to be dependent in prayer. Or uh, help us to not only be comfortable with, but, but delighted in a posture of humility before a God who loves us like this. We ask it in his name for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.